Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And I'm your editor, Bryce. And welcome back to part two of the case involving O.J. Simpson. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. I just want to jump in here real quick before we start this episode to give a little perspective on how things are going at Crime Over Coffee. I'm sure all of you are in some way being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, also known as coronavirus, and we're definitely no exception to that, and it has made it quite a bit more difficult for Erica, Abby, and I to get together to do recordings, especially since the state we live in, Indiana, it seems like it's shutting down more and more every week. But we are doing our best, trying to record as much as possible when we do see each other, and that's why this episode on O.J. Simpson has been split into three parts. We don't have quite enough content recorded yet to keep it consistent consistent weekly schedule right now, so we had to extend this one by one more episode. So I know that makes them a bit shorter than normal, and we hope you guys will understand and hopefully still enjoy the content. Um, That's all I have to say, and I will pass it off to Abby to talk about the trial. First, I want to tell you guys about the prosecution side of it. Overall, their goal was to paint OJ as a jealous ex-husband who was infuriated with Nicole moving on, basically. Police have been called for abuse between OJ and Nicole or domestic violence eight times prior to the murders. And one time specifically, the police showed up and Nicole came running out of the bushes outside the house screaming that he was going to kill her. This time in particular, OJ beat Nicole so bad that she did require treatment at the hospital. And he ended up pleading no contest to the charges are the domestic abuse charges, which basically means that you're not admitting to doing the crime, but you're going to accept a punishment, which he explained that he did this because he wanted to protect the privacy of their relationship. So he's claiming he did not hurt her, basically. I think there's better ways to protect the privacy of a relationship. Like, don't beat your wife. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, that's just one option. They also brought Denise Brown, which was Nicole's sister, to the stand, and she testified to some of the violent behavior that OJ had exhibited in the past, talking about times that she witnessed OJ pick up Nicole and, like, push her into a wall. And there was an account of this time where OJ, in public, like, grabbed Nicole's crotch and said, I own this, and this is just to make babies. So not the healthiest relationship, And during the trial, they did play some of the 911 calls from these incidents to the jury, which you can find some of those online, but we were not able to play them on our podcast because we don't have the rights to those. Then the prosecution points to some of OJ's behavior that made him seem a little guilty, like the note he left before the car chase ensued that they kind of framed as a suicide note. And... The fact that during the chase, he had a gun to his head saying he was going to kill himself and that he deserved to die. And kind of pointing to that being maybe the actions of a guilty person. During the prosecution, they also bring up to testify Alan Park, who was the limo driver for O.J. Simpson the night of the murders. Alan testifies that at 1025, he showed up at O.J.'s house to pick up O.J. for his scheduled flight to O'Hare National Airport and was unable to get a hold of OJ by buzzing into his house. 
And then it wasn't until 10.55 that OJ responds and says he slept in and had been taking a shower. So that's why he was not answering or out of the limo at the time that they had previously discussed. And shortly before 11 p.m. and before OJ buzzes back and tells the limo driver what's going on, the limo driver does see a man, which he describes as a African-American person, about six feet, 200 pounds, walking across the driveway towards the house. The prosecution is kind of pointing at this as maybe OJ coming home after the murders. And just for reference, so you guys know, OJ's house was only about a five minute drive to Nicole's house. Prosecution also points out that Cato, which is OJ's friend who was staying in his guest house, heard some loud thumping outside the guest house around the same time that Alan Park saw the figure going across the driveway. Another big thing that prosecution looks at is the physical evidence that they tied to OJ committing the murders, which there's quite a laundry list of it. So I'm just going to go through and read a couple of them. Anybody who knows the case knows a few of the pieces of evidence, specifically that infamous glove. So they found a glove at the crime scene and then the glove that matches that behind the guest house at OJ's. The blood found on the glove behind OJ's house matched the blood of Nicole, OJ, and Ron. There was a hat, they describe it as a black navy watch cap, that was found at the crime scene as well that had hair fibers in it that were consistent with OJ Simpson's. There was blood on a sock that was found inside OJ's house that was consistent with Nicole's blood as well. And there was also... Blood found in the driveway of O.J. Simpson's house, a bloody shoe print at the crime scene that matched the size of O.J.'s shoes and the tread of a pair of shoes that he owned. And it was also discovered that previously O.J. had purchased a knife that matched what the coroner decided could have been the murder weapon in Nicole and Ron's. And both the shoes and the knife were never found or retrieved. The limo driver also testifies that when OJ gets into the limo, he had a small black bag with him and he would not let the limo driver touch the bag. And the bag was never seen since. So prosecution points to this as a little fishy and maybe this has some evidence that OJ is trying to dispose of. There is also droplets of blood found at the crime scene that was consistent with OJ Simpson's blood as well. Specifically, it says it could come from one out of 170 million sources of blood. Those are the probabilities, and that one fits OJ's profile. There is also some blood found in OJ's Bronco, the foyer of his house, and the master bedroom of his house. I'm not sure exactly how much it was. I think it was consistent with OJ's blood, aside from the sock that was consistent with Nicole's blood. Were there any marks or anything on OJ that would have caused him to have been bleeding he did have that cut on his finger when police took him into custody to interview him the mystery has been solved here at crime over coffee our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is fire department coffee and you can get some as well and save 15 percent with our exclusive coupon code crimepod15 owned and operated by firefighters and veterans 10 percent of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, 
help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. I'm going to go ahead and move over to the defense now and a little bit of their argument as to why O.J. Simpson was not guilty of these murders. O.J. Simpson was obviously pretty wealthy. We all know this. And he compiled this amazing defense team, for lack of a better phrase. They call them the dream team. It had very big names and DNA specialists and also had Peter Neufeld, who is the founder of the Innocence Project. So some big names in there. One you guys probably have heard of, Robert Kardashian. He's pretty infamously linked to this crime. In the beginning of the defense, they had family members of O.J. Simpson testify in his defense. And apparently this was a big move that kind of put a lot of sympathetic feelings towards OJ. They also talk about how OJ had this crippling arthritis and he physically could not carry out the murders. However, the prosecution did show videos of OJ leading some like physical workouts that kind of disproves this theory and points that he had the physical capability to carry out a crime. The defense team had quite a big advantage In regards to that long list of physical evidence, because so much of it was not collected, handled, or anything correctly. I've got a list of things they did wrong. I'll read a couple of them for you guys. And photos taken, they didn't put any anything for scale or measurement. They bagged some evidence with other evidence and didn't seal it correctly, didn't wait for it to dry out before they sealed it. They even used a blanket from inside the house to cover Nicole's body and there's evidence that was mistagged and mishandled in the chain of custody there was unauthorized personnel involved with handling this evidence some of it ended up sitting in cars and vehicles for a couple of days before it was dealt with properly just a whole list of things that the forensics team I guess or police officers investigators what have you did wrong when they were collecting this stuff that could be pointed to a t- either tampering or just accidental accidental mix-ups there is a whole vial of OJ Simpson's blood that they had in evidence that became missing all kinds of mistakes so when I was researching I also found another one that one of OJ's vials of blood was accidentally spilled by one of the lab technicians in the same lab that they were testing all of the evidence samples that they had, which could have led to some sort of contamination happening with the evidence. So it kind of makes it inadmissible in court if it's been contaminated, as you were talking about. They even messed up a couple key things in the autopsy, which I think, Erica, you have some information on that. Yeah, so when Dr. Golden performed the autopsy of Nicole and Ronald, he made a couple mistakes so he didn't perform a rape kit on either victim which experts say it's a routine thing that needs to be done on any autopsy and that makes sense it points to motive and i think too if they were to have been sexually assaulted or raped it points away from oj it could have also had some dna evidence Mm -hmm. if he did a rape kit that wasn't already collected Dr. Golden also got rid of the contents of Nicole's stomach and didn't identify any of the contents of her stomach or of Ron's stomach, which that one is iffy on whether or not that's super important. They like to check the contents of the stomachs in most autopsies, but in this one, it just, it didn't happen. Dr. Golden did not x-ray the bone fragments to see if they were microscopic bits from the attacker's knife, 
which would have kind of given them a better idea of what knife was used. And then if they did find a knife in the future that they wanted to compare, they could have compared any bits found in in either of their bodies to the knife that they found. I wonder then, because the prosecution does point at the fact that OJ had purchased a knife that could fit one that was used at the crime. I wonder what that's based off of. I'm going to say it's based off of the depth of the wounds and the size of the wounds and not necessarily having the fragments to compare it to. Dr. Golden also mislabeled a vial containing bile from Nicole Simpson. And then the last one that I'm going to point out is that after he saw the photographs of Nicole and Ron after they were released, he looked at those and then issued a supplemental report that had additional cuts and marks and bruises from the original autopsy. For example, Ron Goldman's Adam's apple being severed was not in the original autopsy. And the bruise on Nicole's brain was also not in the original autopsy. Those were things that were added later after the photographs came out. Which I realize this is a lot of information we're kind of throwing at you guys. And it's just really a brief overview. The trial lasted nine months and it was extensive. So we're kind of just trying to give hit some of the key points in the case. And correct me if I'm wrong on this. Was this specific case, this trial that set a new sort of standard for the way that crime scenes are handled as far as collecting evidence? Because this was nationwide coverage. And so a lot of these discrepancies were very well known. And is, is this the one that you would say really set those new standards and the trend for just the care that scenes are handled? I would 100% say that it probably had a very large impact. It's a trial that is most famously known for the amount of people who firmly believe that O.J. Simpson was guilty and the defense was able to point out all these things. And I would say it probably did kind of, you know, kick people in the butt and say you guys need to be more careful when you're collecting evidence from a crime scene. Yeah, this case is really known for kind of solidifying the chain of command and making sure that all crime scenes in the future are handled with more care, including not using blankets from homes in the house to cover it up or making sure the evidence makes it from the crime scene to the lab without having all the in-between stops in cars and pockets and all of these things. And in its own individual sealed bag, not with other evidence. Correct. I'm going to move on to some more of the defense tactics that they showed throughout the trial. I think I'm going to go ahead and hit the glove thing, the famous gloves quote, I guess is the best word for it. During the trial, they had OJ put on one of the gloves that was found and entered into evidence. You can watch the video of him trying to put this glove on. It's it's goofy to watch, and there's a lot of conspiracy around the fact that they gave it to him and had him try to put it on, but it, it doesn't end up fitting, which the defense team says, if it does not fit, you must acquit, claiming that if the glove doesn't fit his hand, there's no way he committed the crimes. Now, there's another side of that. The glove could have shrunk from the blood that was on it. It also was frozen and unfrozen a couple times to preserve it during this long length of time. And OJ had arthritis, and they talk about how he maybe wasn't taking his medicine for it, so his hands could have been much more swollen from it when he, quote-unquote, tried to put the glove on. I think a lot that would determine what happened to the glove would be based on the material it was made of and all sorts of steps that was implemented into the chain of custody and where all that evidence went. But 
I mean, just based on the material it was made of could greatly shift how dried blood could affect it and getting wet and frozen and all that stuff. It's interesting because the glove was such a statement piece in the defense trial, but there's just so many other explanations, I think, to why it doesn't fit that it's it's goofy that so much was focused on it. One of the big players in this case is Detective Mark Furman for the LAPD. He was a big blow to the prosecution. So Furman was the first to O.J. Simpson's house after the murders were discovered, and he actually hopped the fence getting into O.J. Simpson's yard, and he was the one that found quotes around, found some of the key evidence, specifically that glove that was behind the guest house. Normally, it doesn't sound that bad that a detective found key evidence in a case, but they bring up Furman to the stand and question him and ask him, if he is racist at all or has ever used racial slurs. And he's like, no, I've never done that, which the defense obviously had a plan. (laughs) So they pull up this interview from the past with Furman between him and a woman named Laura McKinney. She was actually a screenwriter who was interviewing Furman to get some ideas about a script she was writing in relation to police officers, detectives, and crime and that sort of thing. And in it, Mark Furman reveals that he was pretty damn racist. He drops some bad words. He says some horrible stuff. And he even makes comments about planting evidence to secure convictions. And the defense plays this for the jury. And it it does two things. It points to the fact that anything Furman has said could be a lie. And it opens up the door that maybe Furman had it out for OJ and was planting evidence to get him convicted. Yeah, that probably took some of the heat off of OJ at that point. It did. And there's actually, I mean, there's even a lot of controversy about the judge in this case because some of the connections that the defense was trying to make by pointing fault to Furman almost wouldn't necessarily be admissible or allowed to theorize like this in some court cases. The defense suggests that maybe Furman grabbed one of the gloves from the crime scene, put it in the blood, and took it over and dropped it or found it, however you want to go with it, at OJ's house. I also saw that when they were doing the trial, they asked Detective Furman if he had planted the glove at OJ's house, and he decided to use his Fifth Amendment right to stay silent. That's rather suspicious, don't you think? Just a little bit. You would think you would just say, no, I didn't. So thinking kind of holistically about this whole situation with the two gloves i'm just trying to imagine a situation where let's say i was committing this crime and let's say i lost or took off one of my gloves at the crime scene i then have my whole walk run drive all the way back to the other house just to then realize in my backyard oh i still have this other bloody glove off let me just take it off and throw it on like that whole idea seems weird it's strange i mean i think maybe they were assuming it was like in his pockets or in a bag or something they dropped out i don't know but why If he committed the crime with the gloves on, it seems like a bad move to leave it there and then leave one conveniently right over at your house. Especially, obviously he's already familiar with the idea of DNA, which is why he has gloves on in the first place. So if he's committed the crime and has successfully done it and killed them, then there's nobody to fight with about the glove. Like, it's not like somebody pulled it off him and kept it. He could have taken that evidence with him. Like, he would notice that his glove wasn't on anymore. And so, I don't know. The whole thing's just, 
It just doesn't add up to me. How suspicious is it that the racist detective is the first one to just burst onto the scene and just happen to find this glove that he just happened to have fall out of his pocket? Subly suspicious. And the defense used that. And something else that the defense had in their favor was the race card. Aside from Furman being as racist as he was, kind of had two problems with it. One, it's horrible that he's racist and he was... Listening to the interview, is it's hard to even listen to. It's so bad. But two, it gained a lot of sympathy with the jury. This case is also famously known for the fact that there is a lot of racial tension going on in the L.A. area during this time period. In 1991, the LAPD had led a high-speed car chase following Rodney King after he didn't pull over while he was speeding. And... Once they finally stopped Rodney, they basically beat the shit out of him to a point, well past the point where they had him detained. When they went to court for the police brutality suit that he filed against LAPD, the officers were completely acquitted and a lot of people point to the fact that the jury was predominantly white. Now in the OJ case, it was predominantly minorities and there was a lot of racial tension in the courtroom in the sense of not even just in the courtroom, in America, while people were watching the case unfold and they were thinking, you know, it's either you're siding with these white racist people or you're siding with OJ, who is maybe being framed because of his ethnicity. And a lot of people to this day believe that the jury, whether or not they believed OJ was guilty or not of the murders weren't going to convict him to make a statement against the LAPD and against against this tampering and this racism that was floating around in the area. The defense also starts to paint Nicole as kind of a party girl and saying that she was into stuff maybe she shouldn't be into and using that as a reason that or a motive that somebody else could have came and attacked her. Someone maybe she ran into while she was out and about they really tried to portray O.J. Simpson as just a innocent, responsible man who's just caught up in the situation. There is a point in the trial where they take the jurors to O.J. Simpson's house, even and walk them around the area. And they talk about how conveniently there's more pictures up of him with his family and his house was decorated a little different to make it seem like he was just this innocent guy who got caught up in this bad situation. Nine months later, from when the trial started, so October 2nd, 1995, the jury deliberated for less than four hours and came back to find O.J. Simpson not guilty. This shocked, I think, is a good word for a lot of people watching the case, following the case, or even involved. A lot of people really thought O.J. Simpson was guilty, and I think that's why this case is pretty famously known right now. Although O.J. Simpson was found not guilty, later on he was charged with a wrongful death lawsuit and it went to court and was very different than the other one. The jury in this civil trial was predominantly white. Simpson also had to testify in this trial, which they did not have him testify in the previous one, which was kind of strange. And he was unable to give a lot of good answers to some of the physical evidence that had gotten brought up. And he was not portrayed quite as much as this innocent man who just got stuck in this bad situation. 
They also were not able to bring in the Mark Furman planting evidence aspect. The judge ruled that that theory could not be inserted into the defense. The trial only lasted about three months and the jury deliberated for about 17 hours and came back saying that O.J. Simpson was found at fault for the wrongful death of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman and was ordered to pay a combined $33.5 million in damages to the two families. So just in 2008, O.J. Simpson was charged with robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, and kidnapping. He was in Las Vegas at in 2007, was trying to retrieve what he says was some of his sports memorabilia. He didn't win the trial, so I don't know if it was his or what exactly happened with that, but he was sentenced to 9 to 33 years in prison. OJ was then released from prison in October of 2017 after serving nine years for that crime. So like I mentioned at the beginning, this episode is getting split into three parts, with a third part releasing this next upcoming Thursday and will be hosted primarily by Erica talking about the different theories and conspiracies about what happened that day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.